Tommy and I were in a seminary together, and we have also written a book together, the book What the Bible Teaches About Spiritual Warfare, which has now been in print for 25 years. That's amazing. And uh, so uh, Tommy is the executive director of the uh, Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group, and I encourage all of you that if you have never gone to the Pre-Trib Conference that's held each year in Dallas, Texas, that you make time to do that. If you thought this was a, a good, profitable, edifying conference, then you will find that uh, as well. We sort of modeled a lot of what we do on what they've been doing. It's been 25 years, right? This will be the 24th. You can go to the pre-trib.org website, pre-trib.org website, and all the papers that have been presented and much more are on that, that website. It's a great resource for looking for many, many, getting answers to many questions you might have on things eschatological and dispensational. So Tommy is, I think, the resident expert in this time of the church age on dispensationalism and eschatology and is really the spokesman for that we have today for traditional uh, dispensationalism. And so I'm very grateful for all the work that he has done and the experience that he has which is just, you know, greater than I think anybody else on the planet today. So Tommy's going to come and address an issue that, in fact, a few weeks ago he debated Joel uh, Rosenberg about this on Moody Radio uh, because if you're aware of what's going on today, there are many people who believe that because of the rise of uh, militant Islam in the last uh, 30, 40 years that that means the Antichrist will be Muslim. So he's going to address that question. Tommy? Thank you very much. Okay, there you go. So uh, this has become an issue in the last few years. In fact, um, what we're seeing generally in the field of Bible prophecy, it used to be uh, that people would have Bible prophecy conferences and people would come and teach the Bible. Uh, and then, you know, they would spec, you know, people are going to speculate in relationship to that. But today, they take certain views for granted and they talk about it's more like a um, UFO conference. <laughs> and I've been to some of these. And, you know, I went to one that had 28 speakers in Orlando, and I was, I was probably the only Bible teacher there. There's one other guy there. Yeah, that that were known as Bible teachers, if you know what I mean. And ever, you know, one guy has a whole ministry based on UFOlogy, and you know, the Antichrist is going to be a alien, and that kind of stuff. There's another guy that has a whole ministry on angelic watchers from the Book of Daniel on angels, 
you know, and how they're going to be coming back and the Nephilim and all of that kind of stuff. You know, I believe in the Nephilim. I believe, you know, in their understanding of Genesis chapter 6, but... Okay. We've got to get the microphone a little closer to the source. But the um, phrase, as it was in the days of Noah, is taken... And just anything that's happening, they relate it to it, but they fail to read the rest of the verse, which says they were marrying, it's qualified, you see. They were marrying, giving in marriage, and all of that kind of stuff. And so, in other words, they're going about everyday activities when they should have taken notice of what's happening, that these were unusual times. And so that's not some blank check, so to speak, to get up and anything you can imagine. But but that's what's happened. And I think the reason is because churches have quit teaching these areas of the Bible. And so you have, uh, you know, the prophecy club people get together and go off on their own. And uh, it's becoming weirder in, in one sense in that area as people have vacated. You know, it used to be in the 60s and 70s, you know, you could... Everybody, you know, in Bible churches would do a series, for example, on on tongues. Everybody would do a series on Bible prophecy, you see, and things like this. Well, nowadays, people don't think you can know these things because of the relativism, and so therefore you can't know if tongues, for example, were temporary. And so everybody is open but cautious or something like that to uh, that issue. And the same thing in in, uh, Bible prophecy, the pre-trib rapture is always the first thing to go. And uh, and I remember Walvard saying years ago that uh, the reason why he focused on pre-tribulationalism, because early on Dallas Seminary was fighting post-millennialism in the 1920s and 30s when... Walvert arrived in the 1930s, believe it or not, and uh, they were fighting that issue, and he realized the same theological issues, the same exegetical type things, hermeneutical things, and all of this were involved in pre-tribulationalism that was involved in the other, uh, premillennialism, and he realized that if you give up on pre-tribulationalism, then necessarily you're going to lose the, the fight between premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism. And he's right, because either you interpret the Bible consistently literally, which leads to our view, or you allegorize it and be done with it, you know, amillennialism, and all other views are blends of some literal or allegorical interpretation, and thus they break, those systems break down into that kind of stuff. But so uh, it's not surprising because Islam is in the news that in the last 15 to 20 years there are people who think that the uh, Antichrist will be Islamic. And there's Joel Richardson who has popularized this view. That's not his real name. I don't know what it is, but uh, you know he's afraid of the Muslims are going to get him or his family. So he has a, uh, a thing. And I did have this debate, I guess it was May 30th, on a program called, uh, what's that called? Uh, well, it's some debate-type program on Moody. And the problem 
with this is it's like when I used to do preterism is you spend so much time, the view is so new, they get two-thirds of the time to explain their view. You see what I'm saying? And uh, she wasn't even going to let me explain my view. I, I, she always had me reacting, and, and she was on my side. You know, she agreed with us. Uh, and as a result, you know, you have to break in and say, well, let me at least explain why I don't think the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim, if you, if you know what I mean. And uh, that's why these kind of radio debates really are not that good because about the time you get going, you know, you have to go to a commercial break, and then they come back. They said they're going to answer it when they come back, and they forget and all this kind of stuff. But uh, if you want to listen to it, there it is. Dave Reagan, um, how many of you all remember when he ran for governor of Texas in the 70s on the Republican Party thing? And uh, remember it was the year Sissy Farenthal and Dolph Briscoe battled it out on the Democratic side. Well, I, I remember uh, Dave Reagan running for governor that year. Of course, he didn't get very close because we were still a democratic state back then. <laughs> and it was a few more years that we cast it out. But <clears throat> nevertheless, he, he, he has a prophecy ministry and... Um, he wrote a very good, it's on our website called An Evaluation of the Muslim Antichrist Theory. And by the way, he has two degrees from Harvard. So he's a, he's a good researcher and everything. And uh, he did a really good job um, on that. And so I would recommend that. And I've used his stuff a lot here. So when we look at the Quran, see, we got to spend time looking at Islam to understand the position that this guy takes. Muhammad was illiterate, uh, so he had scribes writing things down uh, over a 23-year period. He died in 632. By the way, these scribes, uh, it, uh, Arabia was about 50% Christian at this time. And uh, it had a, a, a high pockets of Jewish people as well. And Christians and Jews in Arabia were about the only literate people. Christianity produces, you know, literate cultures. Uh, and so does Judaism. Judaism is probably the only culture historically that has been literate during its whole time. You know, had people in it that can write and read and do all of those kinds of things. And uh, so they had a Jewish guy that recorded all of these sayings from the Quran, and that's why Islam, I believe, has a, a lot of Christian and Jewish ideas in it, corrupted, of course. And so in one sense, Islam is a Christian-Jewish heresy. And so if you think of what Christianity was like in the 7th century, there's a lot of similarities in uh, Islam, which, of course, freezes itself during this time. And so the Quran supposedly was written uh, shortly before Muhammad's death, and it's about the length of the New Testament. The Hadith, is so the Quran is the thing that is considered the inspired word of God for Muslims. And the Hadith is like the Talmud, is for Jews. It is the second most sacred book, and 
There are over 400,000 sayings in the Hadith that supposedly were said by Muhammad, and people supposedly wrote this down, and there's different versions of the Hadith, just like there's different versions of the Talmud and all this kind of stuff. And the Hadith is, if you're a Muslim, you memorize the Quran, just like if you're a Jewish person, you memorize the Bible, the Old Testament, and then you sit the rest of your adult life, if you're a scholar, and argue the Hadith. You see what I'm saying? So that's the focus. The Quran really reflects the amillennial type blah view of Bible prophecy. It just talks about the end of the day when Muhammad shows up, you see what I'm saying, and the judgment day. And that's about all it has eschatologically. The Hadith, on the other hand, has all kinds of things. And, uh, for example, I heard in the 1980s some guy, some Muslim read Hal Lindsey's Let Great Planet Earth and thought that was pretty exciting and wrote a, a Let Great Planet Earth version for Islam. And about, they say, half of the Muslims in the world are aware of, of this particular book where he takes a different version of how, you know, and spices up uh, Islamic eschatology with, with more details and things. And so Islam has a lot of these kinds of influences in it, that, but it's corrupted. And so all these stories and things in the Hadith, um, and it took about 200 years after Muhammad died to pull this together. So you're thinking around, you know, the late 800s, 900s is when the Hadith came online, so to speak. And uh, the most authoritative is considered to be one by Al-Burqi'i. And he collected, as I said, over 400,000 sayings of Muhammad and stories about him. And these come from the writings of both friends and family members. And many came from Muhammad's 15 wives. I bet they had some stories to tell. Uh, Al-Burqi'i. Uh, verified 7,000 is genuine. There's a big debate as to what's genuine and what's not. Uh, uh, because Alberki Hadith, one of the several versions of the Hadith that has been produced by compilers, and that's considered the main Hadith that people study today. And uh, the Quran contains very little prophecy, as I said, about the end times. And uh, it just basically has the resurrection and the judgment day. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Shadid, Shahid, who is a professor at Southwestern Seminary, wrote a very good book where he went through and called The Last Trumpet here, and it's a comparative study in Christian Islamic eschatology, and uh, it's a very excellent study, and he shows that the Islamic eschatology is a blend of Christian eschatology, corrupted, of course, Jewish eschatology corrupted, and Zoroastrianism, a little Zoroastrianism thrown in. And so if you want to know or see something that is developed within the culture, like the liberals like to say, you know, here's a good example. Islam is an actual example of cultural views being uh, collected and put into a version. And, and the, uh, Dr. Shahid is a director of Islamic studies at Southwestern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas.
And uh, he attempts to show these major concepts of Islamic eschatology were borrowed from the Hebrew Scripture, the Christian New Testament, and Zoroastrianism. And, and so uh, he spent a lot of time working on this. And this is about the only book that I know of or have heard of that does this, that lays all this stuff out for you if you're interested. So uh, he proves conclusively that Muhammad secured many of his ideals orally from Christians, Jews, and followers of Zoroastrianism. In the process, he got many of the stories and principles confused, that is, the Quran, Muhammad. Uh, for example, the Hadith states that the mother of Jesus was Mary, the sister of Moses. I thought those kinds of mistakes were, could only be made by postmoderns and millennials today, but apparently it goes way back. They must have ancestors way back there. He also points out that the Hadith was compiled at a time when Islamic authorities knew much more about the Bible and Christian traditions and literature. Thus, many Hadith passages were manufactured and embellished and were heavily influenced by Christian sources. Uh, about 15 years ago, I went to Saudi Arabia for a couple of weeks, and I taught Bible prophecy clandestinely in the kingdom. And uh, they gave me a paper uh, that showed half of Arabians at the time Islam arose were Christians. It gave a whole history of the rise of Christianity in uh, there. So there really wasn't this supposed, you know, the, the, everybody wasn't some animist like is often depicted with the rise of Islam. Many had become Christians. In fact, in, in Saudi Arabia, we went and saw a church, and they had a chain-link fence around it, you know, from uh, the Middle Ages because what they do over there is you can't, within at least Saudi Arabian Islam, you cannot repair a church or do anything. It just sits there. I guess it's sitting there showing the victory. And, and all this sand had blown all over it and everything. And we went and looked, and there was a church, you know, behind this tra- chain link fence uh, over a thousand years old or about a thousand years old. And so it's some kind of memorial, I guess, or something like that. So complicating matters is the fact that the Hadith passages concerning the end times are highly contradictory, and thus it's difficult to nail down a lot of specifics. Now, I'm telling you all this because when when it comes to trying to argue for an Islamic antichrist, you've got this kind of fluid situation within Islam on their belief system. You see what I'm saying? And you have all these different sectors like we do even in Christian eschatology, and we have a reliable source of the Bible you know, that we're drawing from. So one very interesting aspect of Islamic eschatology is that it presents signs of the times for the people to watch. And like many within Christianity, Islam teaches that only God knows the exact timing of end-time events. And this would be from the Hadith. Uh, but there are signs to watch for that will indicate the season of the end times, and these signs fall into two major categories. They call them major signs and minor signs. So the minor signs are increase in ignorance concerning the fundamentals of the faith, Islam. Secondly, increasing instability of the faith. Muslims are becoming Christians overnight. Heaven forbid, right? 
and an increase in false prophets. Well, since your organization was started by a false prophet, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, well, <clears throat> yes. An increase in apostasy, as evidenced by Muslims following false teachers. An increase in religious pretentiousness, as in bu- the building of a luxurious mosque. Ooh. Um, an acceptance of astrology. I don't know. Frankly, I don't know how that's working out, but if that's really popular among Muslims or not. An increase in alcohol use and illicit sexual relations. Uh, That's probably true. Uh, When I was in Saudi Arabia, they showed us the bridge that went to Bahrain, where a million uh, Saudis go every weekend, they said, for fun and relaxation. And it was a 28-mile bridge to the to Bahrain, which is Shiite, uh, Shiite Muslim uh, situation. You know, it's probably the closest thing to uh, to what's that very rich, wealthy Dubai. Yeah, it's very similar to Dubai. They say. Well, an increase in natural calamities. Everybody has that in there, right? And uh, an increase in political corruption. And people longing for death due to increase in calamities and wickedness. So the, these are minor things. Well, there certainly have people longing for death in Islam, right? They're called uh, suicide bombers, you know. Or increase in paganism. Um, I made a big... I did not check this one. I brought it from one computer to the next, you know what I mean? And uh, darn it, I should have done that. I forgot about it because when I change it over, um, it changes it. Uh, so women will outnumber men 50 to 1, apparently because uh, it will be because of the uh, men getting killed and, and jihad and all of that kind of stuff. And the Arabs must conquer Constantinople. See, the the Turks who took it over are not Arabs. So this would be uh, on ISIS's list to conquer Constantinople. And and by the way, ISIS also has to defeat Rome. That that's part of their eschatology. And and the the town I forget the name of the town that's there. Uh, capital city, you know, that was some prediction that that would be the capital or the, for the caliphate, you know, uh, for Islam and everything. And a people will emerge that eat their tongues like cows, eat with their tongues like cows. Never noticed that, have you? Well, I guess some people are more observant than others. And uh, time will, con- uh, in other words, will contract... Uh, with a year being like a month and a month like a, a week, etc. Wild beasts will speak to men. We had that in the Toronto revival, didn't we? You know, uh, bark, you know, making animal sounds and all of that. Um, the Euphrates River will uncover a mountain of gold. Well, that will be wonderful. So these are all the the wonderful minor signs that will occur according to these traditions within Islam. And it shows you 
some of the stuff coming out of the Hadith. Now, the major signs, you have the appearance of the Antichrist called the Dajjal. And uh, you have the rise of the Islamic Messiah called the Mahdi. And you have Jesus is going to return during this time, and Jesus, you'll have the reign of Jesus, and then the day of resurrection called the hour, and then the day of judgment, and Jesus will tell everybody to convert to Islam, you know, within their framework, and Jesus will submit to Muhammad. I mean, according to these guys. So they they believe Jerusalem pl- plays an important role that the Jews will come back to Jerusalem, which they have, and that they will temporarily defeat the Arabs, the Muslims. But the obviously the Muslims will eventually prevail. Yes. So you have specific end time events. Oh, here here we are. Uh, the appearance of the Mahdi. And uh, so, boy, I wish I'd have thought to do this before, and y'all wish I had thought to do it. <laughs> but you can't read it all unless I do this. It's not a tech problem. It's a user problem. You know, I, I didn't. Um, right. I think that's pretty close for government work. Okay. I need to do this. There you go. Now I can see the entire thing. And voila. Yeah, but hopefully I don't have to do that to everyone, but I probably will. The appearance of the Antichrist called the Dajji, Dajjal, uh, he will be a Jew born in Iran to parents who have been childless for 30 years. Wonder where they got that. Um, see, there there has always been a rivalry between uh, Iranian Muslims, Shiites, and Arabian Muslims, because Persia, you know, Iran does have a tradition of a of a great intellectual culture. They really do, and whereas. You know, the Arabs, you know, yeah, not so much. They're, they're camel jockeys in the eyes of the Iranians. And so it, uh, the Iranians, when they got into Islam, had to have their own version, you see. This is not the only, but one of the main factors of the development of Shiite. And so what you're seeing today in the Middle East is a fight over 
whether the Arabs or the Persians are going to take over the caliphate, you see. And the Persians looked down on the camel jockey Arabians, you see, who have to hire people to run their industries and do all of this. They can't do it themselves. They have to bring in the Americans and people. And uh, and so this is part of the reason for their differences between the Shiite and uh, uh, Sunni uh, Muslim things. And uh, Shiite Islam is very mystical. Uh, you know, they'd be more like the charismatic Pentecostal types within Christianity, whereas the Sunnis are less so that. So uh, he, they say that this Antichrist will claim to be a prophet, and then he will come to be to claim to be divine. He will deceive many by his godliness and miracles. He will go forth with an army of 70,000 Jews and 70,000 Tartans. See, who are those folks? Uh, but, well, whoever they were. And he will conquer all the world except for Mecca and Medina. And he, his reign will last for 40 days during a time when one day will be like a year. So I'm not sure what that means, you know. If that means it's going to be longer or, four, or it's going to be 40 literal days. But uh, some passages of the Hadith indicate that he will uh, have the world... Uh, infidel written on his forehead, the word infidel. Uh, his reign is characterized by cru- uh, cruelty and deceit, and he has a militaristic mentality. His perp- I guess if he's going to conquer the world, you have to. His purpose is to be uh, deified, worshipped, and to reign. So this is their, their antichrist. Yep, here we go again. I, I better do this because uh, to explain the Messiah... So they, they also believe that there's the Messiah, the Mahdi, that's going to come on the scene to counter the Daji, the Antichrist. And, you know, this is one of the things that Joel Richardson and the other major proponent of this view, Walid Shabbat, who we've had speak at some of our events, uh, he is very anti-pre-trib. Needless to say, and so, uh, in fact, Walid Shabbat is trending toward being a Catholic now. And uh, the rising of the Islamic Messiah called the Mahdi, he will be a descendant of Muhammad who will come on a white horse. All right. Uh, he will deliver the world from the reign of the Dajjal. Uh, in the process, he will conquer Israel and slaughter the Jews. And he will establish a new Islamic world headquarters in Jerusalem. And he will rule for seven years, hmm, and possibly eight or nine years. Do I hear eight or nine? (laughs) Uh, Depending upon differing Hadith passages, his rule will end with his death. So uh, they put the death of the Messiah into the future, you know, where, whereas, and then they have the return of Jesus who will greet him and escort him into Jerusalem and all this kind of stuff and then turn, turn everything over, turn the Christians over to Islam and all of that kind of stuff. So, uh, 
you have the day of the resurrection called the hour, as we said, and um, this is important in there. The day of judgment at this point, Allah descends from heaven to judge all humanity. Allah will weigh the good and the bad deeds of each person. Works. Needless to say, there's no grace here. Uh, this is called the concept of the scale. Uh, the deeds of all people will be weighed in all his scales to determine their eternal destiny. Muhammad, when he died, didn't know if he was going to go to heaven or not. And um, the case for the... <laughs> I thought you all would like this. The case for the Islamic Antichrist. Yes, we can. And... Uh, Okay, yes. So, this is Joel Richardson. He argues that the Mahdi will be the Antichrist of the Bible within Islam. The Muslim Jesus will be the false prophet of the Bible who serves the Antichrist and his purposes. Both will be destroyed by, uh, when the true Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation. This is Joel Richardson's view in his book about what he thinks uh, will happen. Proof of his thesis repeatedly points to the amazing similarities and amazing parallels between the biblical Antichrist and the Muslim Mahdi. How are these amazing when you had Christians and all that influence early on? You see what I'm saying? It's not amazing. They borrowed it and corrupted it from the Bible. It's not amazing. You know, they added a few choice uh, things. Both are pictured as an unparalleled political, military, and religious leader who will come on a white horse and who will team up with a false prophet to conquer the world and, and institute a one-world religion. Now, he goes on and says, The Bible says the Antichrist will attempt to change the laws and times. He says the Mahdi would do just that, instituting Sharia law and imposing the Islamic calendar. Now, if go back to the passage in Daniel that talks about this. It says he will attempt. It doesn't say he will. And uh, how could that be significant when what whatever the size of Islam is under Sharia law, they've already changed the times. You see, it would seem to me that he's going to uh, change the times and the seasons uh from what they are, and so if much of the world already is under Sharia law, how is that changing anything? It's just ex expanding it. The Bible says the Antichrist will behead uh, those who resist him, and of course it does say that, you know, in the book of Revelation. You ever heard of the French Revolution? You know, they did that then, and they weren't, they weren't uh, Islamic. He belabors the point that execution by beheading is one of the cardinal characteristics of Islam, which it is. But um, he notes that there is a Hadith passage that states that the Mahdi will make a covenant with the Romans through a Jewish intermediary and that the covenant will be for a period of seven years. Well, I wonder where they got that. Just like the seven-year covenant the Bible says the Antichrist will make with the Jewish people. Well, the seven-year covenant, you know, is in the earliest church fathers. You know, Irenaeus talks about it. Hippolytus, his disciple, talks about it. 
you know, so it, it goes way back. You know, they understood that in the early church as far back as we have records. Now, the Mahdi and the Muslim Jesus, the false prophet, will unite the whole Islamic world, reviving the Ottoman Empire. See, that's what's going on today is Muslims want to reestablish the caliphate. I mean, that's what um, Nasser wanted to do in Egypt. That's what Saddam Hussein wanted to do. See, everybody who's a ruler in Islam wants to reestablish the caliphate because they believe, and they're right, that's the key to conquering the world. If you unified the Middle East and got all that money from oil and everything, then you would have the means to raise a great army and be a great leader, and that's why the... You know, the West, a hundred years ago, after World War One, divided it up. And that's why they did it according to where the oil was. You see, that's where Kuwait came from, even though historically it wasn't, it was always part of Mesopotamia or Iraq and all of these kinds of things. So you can look at the geopolitical situation and see, you know, that they are right in their thinking if we can just somehow, um, uh, Gather, you know, gain control over and reestablish a caliphate in the Middle East, then we uh, will be well on our way to taking over the world. That's why they hate Texas fracking, because it ruins their control of oil. And so Texans who run much of the oil industry over in uh, Saudi Arabia and various places over there, you know, are probably not as well received as they used to be because they're over here developing oil, which brings the overall world price down. So we have our own government that hates fracking because they don't like oil, and we've got the Muslims that don't like that, and so that threatens them. That's why the Saudis very likely are willing to endure two or three years of uh, lower prices to retain their market share, etc. So you have, uh, they will conquer Israel and establish the headquarters of the caliphate in Jerusalem. And this is Richardson's view. Uh, ISIS has a different view of where the capital of the caliphate is supposed to be. And their rule will come to an end with the battle of Gog and Magog. See, Gog and Magog is big in Judaism today. That's their big eschatology war, and it's big in Islam. And uh, and they believe it will recur, occur at the end of the tribulation, in other words, it's Armageddon when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So this is Joel Richardson's Christian view here. So when Jesus returns, the Islamic world will view the true Jesus as the uh, Antichrist or and uh, so would the Muslim world ever unite since there are so many different hardcore beliefs about these matters, I would ask. You know, I don't, I don't think they would, uh, you know, and things. And that's the whole point is why it requires supernatural abilities of the Antichrist to deceive the whole world to change from the established religions that we have today, you know, to his thing during the second half. So he believes when you come to the book of Daniel that the fourth kingdom was Greece. So if you want to know more, 
you know, you can, his rationale and everything, you can read his stuff, how he manipulates history. You know, I, I, I thought, well, you know, if he's got any, and he, he criticizes the Roman Empire and all, even though it was there when Jesus was there, you know? I mean, it says in Revelation 17, one is, one now is, you see, and it has to refer to Rome and all of this, but he then tries to say that the, uh, the Greek Empire was not divided among four generals, but it was divided among like six to eight or something like that. Well, I, I thought, you know, if he has any kind of monicum of truth, don't you think Wikipedia would reflect that, right? So I went there and looked, and sure enough, they have four empires. That It took 40 years for those four empires to develop, you see. But, uh, you know, that's the Bible prophecy, that they're going to be four heads, four wings, you know, on the thing there in the book of Daniel. And so he manipulates that and basically is saying that in the end times you're going to have a revival of the Ottoman Empire. And, I mean, there's so many problems with this view uh, so that they have to change history, and this is what we're saying when, when you're interpreting the Bible. You never, you can't take a consistent literal interpretation. Uh, you, you have young people oftentimes come along and criticize a traditional view, but they, like they're the first person to discover this view, you know, and they call somebody like me up, like we're not aware of these things, you know. And I always like to say to these people, well, don't you think there was a reason why the traditional view became the traditional view? You know, and, and they typically say, well, you know, I raised up in this church and we always heard this and everybody taught this. It's like no one ever thought why Rome, the revived Roman Empire view, for example, how did that get to be the traditional view within our circles, you see? Well, because there's actual evidence for that view. <laughs> and this is the problem with the lack of teaching. People don't understand why, you know, they just get conclusions and they're not taught from the Bible. So you increasingly have, especially among the younger people, people who do not understand how and why we develop certain views from the Bible. So Richardson argues that the Roman Empire continued to exist in the form of the Byzantine Empire until 1453 when it was felled by the Ottoman Empire. It is therefore the Ottoman Empire, which ceased to exist in 1223, but that will be resurrected in the future, he says. And Gog and Magog, he believes that that will be led by, will not be led by Russia, and it'll be led by Turkey, he believes, because he thinks the furthermost parts of the north are Turkey rather than uh, Rome. When I had that debate with him, you know, they, they got off on this, you know, and I finally had to say, look, I disagree with his view, but it has nothing to do with my view of where the Antichrist comes from because we, I do not think that Gog is the Antichrist, you see or Rosh or whoever, and, uh, you know, we spent like a third of the program arguing over this. And uh, so um, he favors Turkey as the lead of the coalition, as I said, 
and uh, and, and uh, so now for the right view, you know, uh, I've already been talking about it, and this is a classic illustration, in my opinion, of newspaper exegesis, where you look at current events, and then you start uh, building your prophetic scenario, uh, presupposing that something like, uh, you know, the Islamic Antichrist, uh, rather than going to the Bible and inductively studying the Bible, which a lot of people can't do nowadays. See, see that's the problem with this guy's pseudonym. We don't, I don't know his background. I don't know if he has any training. You see what I'm saying? Or if he was some high-tech guy that decided to be a Bible teacher, you know, uh, has no training and, you know, just pops in. So we see in the book of Daniel chapter 2 where, uh, and that's where you find out the book of Daniel, who the Antichrist is and where he's coming from. And he, he's got to be from the revived Roman Empire. I'm sorry. Uh, especially on the basis of Daniel 9, 26 and 27, the people of the prince who is to come that destroy the city and the sanctuary. And he cannot be a Jew either. That, that's a whole other thing. And you had in the early church, uh, when I was doing studies on pseudo-Ephraim, I read all this stuff from the early Middle Ages about early church eschatology, and they believed in a view called the last Roman Empire, the last Roman emperor, rather. And why? Because they're coming out of a time <clears throat> before that Rome was really bad, right? And then when the Roman Empire became Christian, they had to make Rome good. You follow? And so you, you see some aspects of actual Bible prophecy uh, mixed in with a lot of newspaper exegesis or myth from the day. And so Rome was established by Ramus and Romulus and uh, twin brothers according to tr tradition and legend. And therefore they believed that Rome, uh, who they were trying to redeem at this point in the 400s, 500s, 600s, you see, that there would be two gr uh, brothers in the end times. And one would be so righteous that, and he would reign and rule for a period of time, the Roman Empire, and uh, he would be so righteous that he would actually be caught up into heaven without dying. And then his evil twin brother <laughs> would take over and he would be the Antichrist, you see, and he, you know, they go on and on about how bad he was, the last Roman emperor is what this is. And you see all of that mythology. This was the popular prophecy view in the 400s, 500s, 600s in uh, Christianity, where they mix in what we call newspaper exegesis. And so to me, this is the same kind of stuff that Joel Richardson is doing, you see. 
he, he's trying, he's looking at the current situation and he's trying to blend it in. And he says, you, O king, are the king of kings. And here he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand. By the way, did King Nebuchadnezzar take over every square inch of what he could have taken over? No. But he was given authority over the whole world, this passage says, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. And this is what we say about so much prophetic literature. In the book of Revelation, half of the symbols, 39 symbols, I think, something like that, are explained for you in the text. Just like here he says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So he tells them exactly who this symbol represents. And then we see, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Uh, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Uh, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. And so that's uh, the word kingdoms used nine times here. I think he's talking about a kingdom, don't you? And uh, in 2940, uh, 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 39 through 40. And so the, uh, verse 40 says, Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these things. Now this is talking about clearly the Roman Empire. And I'm not a big fan you know, you see those legs there. Everybody wants to break it off, and you have a lot of dispensationalists today that say, well, one leg represents the Western Empire and the other the Eastern Empire, like Joel Richardson takes that. And they'll even tell you that the revived Roman Empire will have five nations from the West, you know, the ten-nation confederacy, and then five from the East, and they'll name the countries. I'm sorry, the focus of the biblical text is not on, uh, the, doesn't talk about the split legs anywhere. You see what I'm saying? Uh, it tell, the text tells you uh, what, what needs to be emphasized. And in that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, uh, it will be a divided kingdom. Potter's clay means soft clay. And so they're going to, they're going to, these are basically people that don't want to be part of an empire, but they're going to be forced to be part of that empire, and that's why it's soft clay. The clay is then cooked. It becomes brittle clay, you know, and the empire is easy to break apart. Uh, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, and as much as you saw the iron mixed with clay... And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And uh, in that you saw, and so this is the revived Roman Empire part that has not yet happened. And so the, the biblical text is preoccupied with this future time period, and they will combine with one another in the seat of men, but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. And you saw when the Soviet Union broke up how all of nationalism came in and wanted to, you know, break down into these smaller ethnic groups, countries and stuff. And so that's kind of, kind of what's going on. So the head of gold is Babylon. 
I mean, this is a standard view, whether even, you know, non-dispensationalists hold this view. Uh, even many liberals who uh, don't believe in the Bible understand this is what actually happened in history. And so Medo-Persia is the breast of arms and the breast and arms of silver, the belly and thigh of bronze is Greece, and uh, then the legs of iron is Rome. And this is confirmed by Revelation 17. The feet partly of iron and partly of clay is revived Rome. And as you know, each kingdom arose and was defeated by another one, but no one, according to the Bible, defeated Rome in, in the same way where they took over. It just di- kind of dissipated and that's why it's going to be revived. You know, and I and many others believe that probably the European Union is the forerunner that's bringing them back together again. It's not the fulfillment of it, but it's some kind of forerunner to the Ten Nation Confederacy that is setting the stage. And so you have the rock that comes, the stone uh, comes and strikes the feet. So there's some kind of unity to these empires here. Uh, I, I like to call it the kingdom of man. Uh, and I, I think the fact is that it, we see America in decline. And yet what we learn from Daniel is the, the decline of the kingdom of man. Even kingdoms like America that had a Christian beginning and influence. And it, we, we realize that man cannot even hold that together. You see what I'm saying? That the destiny before Christ actually comes and reigns and rules is that uh, we always start out at a high point in every uh, effort by man, politically, kingdom-wise, always declines and self-destructs or is becomes weak and someone overtakes us. And so why are we any different? But I, I would argue that in the church age, God caused, according to Acts 17, causes nations to rise and fall based on the spread of the gospel. That's the big factor. And uh, probably support for Israel. But nevertheless, you, you've had America has been used tremendously just like God used Great Britain when they were an empire, and when they started turning against Israel after World War I, their whole empire began to crumble, and they lost their missionary zeal, etc. America is still being used today, I think, to you know get the gospel out, uh, the remnant of believers here, but it seems to be declining, and so that's why our nation is declining. Uh, probably in preparation not for America's judgment, but for global judgment, the world. All the world is bad. You know, I don't know why people pick on America. I mean, we're bad, but so is everybody else. What's a wonderful nation out there from a biblical perspective? I don't know of any. But nevertheless, in the days of those kings, that's the ten kings here in verse 44, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms, but will itself endure forever. 
you know, when I, if I'm listening to the radio and they bring, they play some hit, this is song will last forever. You always think of this verse. Or somebody says, this is going to go down in history forever as the greatest this or that. No, it's not. It, it shows the production of the kingdom of man is going to be destroyed by the intervention of Christ and it's going to be ground up into fine sand and blown away by the wind, never to be remembered again. And that passage is supposed to give us this eternal perspective. When was the book of Daniel written? It was written, They were in Babylon, uh, right under the strength of King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's the one that had the dream. And that is when you're living in Babylon... You need to know Bible prophecy because it gives you confidence to act and stand up for the Lord in a hostile environment, you see. Because you know one day that stone cut without hand is going to come and it's going to destroy the legacy of the kingdom of man at its height during the tribulation. The Antichrist, when he finally achieves global um, governance, and it's going to be destroyed by the personal return of Jesus. And he's going to set up that kingdom here on earth. And this is why amillennialism and even postmillennialism can't be true because it's these other, it's going, he compares the kingdom of God to other human kingdoms on planet earth, you see. And his kingdom is going to be on planet earth as well. Now, there are many other paths. He goes on and says, As much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. See, elements of all these kingdoms are going to continue to today. And they're going to be destroyed. And um, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. This is why God, when he sends Israel into exile, or the southern kingdom into exile, he picks on the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to give these dreams to, to let him know the only that, that his God wasn't stronger than the God of the Jews, which is the common thought. If your God was stronger, that's when you, you would defeat that nation and you held their God captive as well as, uh, you know, their God. Their God intervened and caused them to have these dreams and be uh, disquieted about them and sends a, a, a Jewish guy, Daniel, to interpret that dream right off the bat. And you see the first part of the book of Daniel is focused on Nebuchadnezzar learning his lesson, right? And he eventually learns the lesson that the God of the Bible is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's just using uh, that. Well, I, I, you know, I'm out of time, and I want to focus real quickly on um, Daniel 9. And the 70 weeks of Daniel. And basically, the 70 weeks uh, tells us where the Antichrist will come from. And so you had the decree 
to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, given and that's recorded, uh, not not rebuild the temple, rebuild uh, Jerusalem by Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, and uh, the time clock started the day, the month. Uh, I'm sorry, the year is recorded there, and the the month is recorded in Nehemiah, and tradition tells us that those decrees were issued on the first day of the month, so we can adjust this to our solar calendar as March 5th, 444 B.C., 69 weeks of years based on a 360-day year, ends on March 30th, A.D. 33. It just so happened to be the very time of the triumphal entry, where in Luke he says, had you known the time of your visitation, the time, you know, and they would have known it through the 70 weeks prophecy. And Jesus of Nazareth shows up at that exact time that their Bible, the book of Daniel, predicted the Messiah would show up. And he is cut off after the 62 weeks. In other words, after the 7 plus 62 means 69 weeks. Four days later, he is killed. And it says, and have nothing. I think the phrase, and have nothing, refers back to verse 24, the six infinitives uh, that talk about what will be com- uh, completed by the end of the 70 weeks of years. So he had nothing. None of those six things were completed for Israel. And so the 70th week is postponed. And... Uh, it also talks about after the 69th week of year, how the city and the sanctuary will be destroyed. 37 years later, this is why you cannot have a continuous fulfillment between the 69th and 70th week. Uh, so A.D. 70, the 9th of Av, the same exact day that the first temple was destroyed, the second temple was destroyed by the Romans in, in the Jewish calendar, the same exact day, 9th of Av, August of AD 70. And so uh, if you believe in a continual fulfillment view like non-literalists do, then there's no way to get this into the full 70 weeks. So that argues for a postponement. And the set, and, and you see this, by the way, this is the first three people in the early church that interpreted the 70 weeks of Daniel all took a postponement view. Do you realize that? I remember Gary DeMar was always running around saying nobody till Darby ever heard of this postponement. Of course, he quit saying that when we came out with all this stuff. Actually, it was an article in Westminster Seminary from the late 40s that talked about this. He called them dispensationalists back in the early uh, days. But nevertheless, so you have this, the people of the prince who is to come uh, are the ones that destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? The Romans did. So the, the Antichrist is talked about in this passage as coming from the same people group. And therefore, he's not going to be a Muslim. He's going to be from the revived Roman Empire. And people say, well, can't he be individually a Muslim? No, you're not going to have that. Uh, and so they're Romans, and so he's got to be a Gentile ruler who arises, the little horn arises among the ten horns, and et cetera, and all of that kind of stuff. Okay, Robbie, am I totally finished? Our questions. Okay, let's pray. Well, that's what I ask. And you said to tell us I'm finished. 
right. And I hate to I hate to do this because a lot of you have questions, but over the last six months, I've gotten a host of questions come in over the internet that I've just put off because Tommy was coming, so they get priority. But okay, first one relates to what you were just talking about in terms of this argument that is presented that the Roman Empire included a lot of what are now Muslim. Uh, countries and Muslim states, for example, most of North Africa, Turkey, Syria, all of these areas in Lebanon were part of the uh, Roman Empire at the, t- at the uh, time of Christ in the first century. So why could not the Antichrist come out of one of those areas and therefore be a Muslim Antichrist? And let me add to that, because this is so we can get all everything covered in one answer. Uh, one person asked the question uh, related to, to uh, that that question. Let me go back to it, get the right one. That since the uh, Antichrist, now I don't. This is his question, not mine. That he says, why is if the Antichrist is not a Muslim, or he, he, what he's asking is why if, if the Antichrist is a non-Muslim European. Why is he called the Assyrian, the king of Babylon, Pharaoh, and the king of Tyre? Those are all Islamically controlled areas for centuries, so answer those. Those kind of go together. Yeah. Those are the common, most common questions sure. you hear. Okay, because the emphasis in the Bible is on Rome. If, look, Rome controlled the whole world. So obviously you're going to have countries that were part of the Roman Empire, you know, that were Muslim, have become Muslim today. Uh, but the emphasis is on Rome. Where did they go? Uh, you know, the guy that defeated them went back and became the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he took the spoils of the temple back to Rome. And even today there's a gate or something there, some memorial and they built the Roman Colosseum with a lot of the bounty they got from destroying the temple in AD 70. And so regardless of the – and this gets back to what I said earlier about how they want to break down everything, you know, between east and west, and then they come in. And those – when you do that, you're bringing in information that's not in the Bible. It may be historically true, and you're putting your emphasis – on this extra biblical thing. You need to look at what the Bible focuses on in those dreams and visions. And the focus there is on the the revived fourth kingdom, you know, the ten-nation confederacy. And so there's a lot we don't know about that, but it's viewed as a revival of the Roman Empire. And so that's why, you know, we believe he's going to be uh, Roman. And you can bring in all of these other things from history and all of this kind of stuff, and that's what Joel Richardson tries to do. In fact, he he doesn't use much Bible to make his case. He has all this history, and even some of the history he has to reinterpret it and take a minority view on a lot of events and things. Now, the second part of the question was... Are the other related to these terms that are used, and I think I would 
I think you're going to say that two of these terms are not used of the Antichrist, but they're related to Satan. Yeah, they got that from A.W. Pink had a book back when he was a dispensationalist on the Antichrist, and he has like 35 terms. Any evil character in history, he puts it in his book, the Antichrist. Now, Pink later totally denied his book on the Antichrist because he became an mill eventually. But everybody uses pink, and pink stretches all the... Oh, the, the Assyrian, that's out of Micah, the book of Micah, and, and there's no eschatological context to the Assyrian there. They come in and make uh, all of these different... By the way, Zane Hodges held that view, the Assyrian Antichrist, for what it's worth. Uh, but that's been a minority view for the last hundred years, developed within some segments of, of the brethren that he'll be an Assyrian. But there's no passage that talks about that, and they have to take passages that talk in, in Daniel chapter 8 that talk about what we believe is Antiochus Epiphanes, and they have to flip them and make them future. You see, no, this doesn't really talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, you see. Uh, this is really talking about the future Antichrist. Well, I agree in R- Romans chapter 8 it's talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but it also is applied, uh, I meant Daniel 8, it, it's applied to the future Antichrist as well. Why? Because they're going to have the same character qualities. In Daniel chapter 8, these are character qualities. There have been millions of people, in my opinion in history, that have had the character qualities of the Antichrist. And this is why just saying that some person is acting a certain way doesn't make them the Antichrist. Because millions of all tyrannical leaders have have very similar characteristics. The Antichrist is going to have those characteristics, but so did Antiochus Epiphanes, you see. And so that's why the Bible, uh, in in that context, in in Daniel chapter 8, it's very clear he's talking about the... Uh, the Greek Empire and uh, he came from the Greek Empire and he came and uh, is a type of the Antichrist by defiling the temple and doing all of those kinds of things it has a specific prophecy relating to the 2300 evening and mornings relating to the temple and all of this and that was fulfilled in the past but the character qualities in there and and then you have in Daniel 11 verses 1 through 35 other stuff that is past, in the past, uh, that's already been fulfilled, and they try to take some of those passages and put them into the future, you see. So uh, when you look at it, for, first of all, Islam was not around when the, when the Bible was written. Islam is a religion that does um, integrate a lot of characteristics of, Ara- of Arabians, are Arabs in it, but I'm sorry, it's it wasn't around, and therefore it's not mentioned specifically. And so they go and they identify these countries today. Well, this has to be this, it has to be that. We don't know what's going to happen to Islam. It could be wiped out uh, as far as its influence, you know, in the Battle of Gog and Magog, if that takes place in the first part or even the first part of the tribulation. In other words, something could happen. Look how fast America has gone down. ISIS lost, has lost two or three battles in a row now. And even our mighty president is getting ready to send. In fact, you know, my son's a chaplain in the Army. The 82nd Airborne's going over there. 
And uh, he thinks part of the reason they're going over there is, is to get set up in case they want to fly some guys in, you know, for some actual combat, you know, to deal with ISIS. And it wouldn't take a whole lot if they're properly confronted for them to go down, you see, if we decided to go in there with, you know, and, and really wipe them out, we could do it pretty quick. If, you know, and, and they're bringing in stuff right now. They're setting up the infrastructure, the supply lines, and all that kind of stuff if they uh, choose to do that in the future. So we don't know where Islam is going to be uh, and all of this kind of stuff. With short answers. So what you're saying is we're, we should be 100% sure that Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 were all prophecies that were fulfilled in the past, and it is illegitimate to transfer those to some sort of future future fulfillment. Um, right, with, with, except typologically. Right, right. They relate typologically because, as, as Dwight Pentecost pointed out years ago, um, and you and I both had him when he was... Right. Rocking and rolling at Dallas Seminary. Yeah, just in is, seven, Satan, is, Satan is no more sure of when the rapture is going to occur than you and I are, which means in every decade he has to have somebody ready to be the Antichrist. He's always got to have some. So that means that in any generation in which you live, you can always point out two or three viable candidates for the Antichrist, right? Yeah, well, but, you know, it's interesting. I, I was uh, short, on a radio short, short program. Short, Let me finish this. Okay. I was on a radio program with <laughs> in Washington, D.C., back when Bill Clinton was president. This lady from Arkansas calls in and says, do you think Bill Clinton could be the Antichrist? <laughs> and I said, well, even though he may have all the character qualities, everyone knows that Bill can't be the Antichrist because it says he'll have no desire of women, so it rules him out. <laughs> All right, here's the... Um, now, when 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 the uh, prince... I thought the, I was going to have my taxes audited, but fortunately I didn't. When, when, when the prince who is to come comes yes. and signs his covenant with Israel, what we else we know from Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and from Revelation... Uh, 12 and 13, is that he's going to, uh, in the abomination of desolation, he is going to enter a Jewish temple in the Holy of Holies to be worshipped as God, and he will construct an image of himself that will be placed in the Holy of Holies. And do you think life. Do you think a Muslim would ever do anything like that? Not, not if they're acting as a Muslim, but this is another thing. The, the Antichrist is going to create something totally new, worship of himself, which is really worship of Satan. He, the, Satan in Isaiah 14 wanted to be ascend above God's hill, and this is his fulfillment. I believe the Antichrist is killed at the midpoint of the tribulation, and he is resurrected by God. Because Second Thessalonians 2 says God will send them a strong delusion through false signs and wonders. Only God can raise someone from the dead. And so he purposely, if you look at the earth dwellers, none of them ever become believers. They're the ones that take the mark of the beast. And the purpose of tribulation, Revelation 3.10, is to test the earth dwellers. And he's going to vindicate that the earth, none of the earth dwellers, no matter what happens, no matter how much direct supernatural revelation they get, an unbeliever is an unbeliever is an unbeliever. And it's going to vindicate 
that, you know, through the tribulation. So five times in Revelation it says that the anti that the beast will be killed and resurrected, raised from the dead. The very same phrase that is used in the original language to describe the lamb's death and resurrection. So yeah, I think uh, the second half is going to be a totally new religion. You see, it's not going to be Islam. They believe Islam is going to take over the world. And there's no indication that Islam is going to take over the world, you know, and do that. Okay. I've dominated on the questions. Anybody else have a question? Any? Okay, Cliff. You get the one question, and then we have to wrap up. Just real quickly, it seems to me like every one of these people that comes to the conclusion of a, of a Muslim antichrist, every one of them seems to put way too much value in the Islamic writings. It's as though right. it's a reliable source. That's Joel that's not, Richardson. It's not God-breathed and inspired. No. I mean, so wh- uh, wh- I think it always – have you found that to be true, yes, that there's always definitely. a mixture there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, does Joel Rosenberg take a Muslim antichrist view? Not Joel Richardson's Joel Rosenberg. No. No. Okay. No. I, I, th- I, thought I mean, he, maybe he does. I don't know. I'll okay. ask him. At, and he's supposed to be our main speaker in December. Okay. Uh, All for right. For the banquet. Tommy, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Appreciate your study and insights always. We'll take a 25-minute um, break.